Amen. Our Father, we thank you for today. We give you praise. We give you worship. We thank you for your hand. We thank you for your presence in our lives and in our midst. We say, may your name be praised in Jesus' name. Father, we pray that as we hear your word today, that you speak by your spirit and by your power in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that what you have for us, that we learn and we gain in Jesus' name. And it will be beneficial for our lives in Jesus' name. Father, I commit myself into your hands. I pray for your strength. I pray for your grace. And I pray for your inspiration to say the things that you need me to say. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Now, today we're going to be continuing with our groundwork series. This is a bi-weekly series in which we're going to be examining, or in which we've been examining some foundational precepts of the faith. Can we open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 6, just as a refresher from verse 1 and 2. Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of, do and of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Amen. As I've said constantly when I introduce this particular teaching, every time I teach it, I remind us that the writer of Hebrews lists out all these different themes or topics or subjects as he calls them the principles of the doctrine of Christ, or he calls them the foundation, right? And that is where we got our inspiration from for the title of this series called the Groundwork Series. Because the groundwork is the same thing as saying foundation. If you look before this chapter, if you look through Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, as we've talked about in earlier weeks, we'll find out that the writer of Hebrews was talking about the difference between um, eating strong meat and drinking milk. Amen. And essentially, he described these topics that we've mentioned and we are considering as milk, essentially. Which means that every Christian should know about these things. So we started by looking at repentance from dead works. And then we listened to Pastor Femi as he taught us faith towards God. And now we are looking at the doctrine of baptisms. Last two weeks I mentioned the fact that the writer saying baptisms here means that there's more than one type of baptism. And we talked about the four types that we have in the New Testament. The baptism of John the Baptist, Christian baptism, the baptism of suffering, which Jesus mentioned, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We also looked at the meaning of the word baptism or to baptize. And we said that if we look at the Greek, it means baptizo. And we said essentially, baptizo is the root word is bapto, and is is an additional syllable that is added to 
that word. So, bapt, then I-Z, in the middle, then O. And bapto means to immerse or to submerge something in a liquid. Then we said is, when we see is in Greek, it means that it's, it's talking about causative effects. So, when you see is, it means that it means to cause something to something. So, what the something is in that context depends on what the root word is. So, essentially, baptism is to cause something to be immersed in a liquid and to be brought out. That's the meaning of the word baptism. The next thing we talked about was the difference between the baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism in water, the Christian baptism, which was also last two weeks. And we said that the major difference is that Christian baptism is an affirmation of something that has already happened. In that, in Christian baptism, you're uniting yourself. You're identifying with Christ in his death and his resurrection. But with the, the baptism of John, the baptism of John was a bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant. In that, John the Baptist came as the forerunner of Jesus. And at the time that John the Baptist was alive, Israel had forgotten the precepts of worship and the spirit behind the law. They were worshiping God essentially based on what the scribes and the Pharisees of that time dictated and said worship was. So John the Baptist came to remind them of repentance. So essentially, the baptism of John the Baptist was unto repentance. But you have to have repented first before you get baptized. You have to first produce evidence that, oh, yes, I've changed my mind. Then John will now baptize you. But John made it clear that his baptism was incomplete or insufficient. So we said that John's baptism and John's ministry in general was a bridge between the old and new covenant because John's ministry had elements of the old in that man still had to walk to earn. In the same way, under the old covenant, we had to come and slaughter or the Israelites, rather, had to come and slaughter an animal to remit for their sins. So in the same way, man had to do something to earn that baptism, and that's why it looked like the old covenant. But how it looks like the new covenant is that he gave a promise of the new covenant because John kept telling the people that, listen, I'm doing for you. There's somebody else that's coming after me that is going to baptize you in the Holy Ghost. Now we can drop into today's... <coughs> teaching, let's just look quickly at the spiritual significance of Christian water baptism. The first is that it is a picture of God's grace. Can we open our Bibles to Romans chapter 6? And I'll read from verse 1 to 7. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Our grace may abound. It says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead in sin, to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were, oh, were baptized into his, what, his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. 
For he that is dead is freed from what? From sin. So the first is that, as you can see here, when Paul was writing his defense for why we cannot continue in sin, you know, many people interpret this as, as Paul, Paul trying to say, um, shall we continue in sin and expect grace to abound? People interpret this as an accusatory statement. But it's not an accusatory statement. It's a defense. So this is not a scripture like many scriptures that Christians tend to interpret to use to flog other believers. That's not the point. That's not the spirit behind the scripture. Because if you look at what Paul said before in chapter 5 of Romans, you would see him talking about how through one man, sin came into the world in Adam. And he started to analyze and tell them that the same way through one man, sin came into the world and we're all lost. Grace has come through who? Jesus Christ. So essentially, this statement that Paul makes in chapter 6 verse 1 is a defense it's a challenge to the believers to let them understand that you cannot continue in sin. And this is why. So it's not telling them that, oh, the grace will stop if you continue in sin. It's telling them that there's grace in abundance for you. And these are the reasons why you cannot continue in sin. Because you have been baptized. In his death. Which leads us to the second point nicely in that the spiritual significance of Christian water baptism is that it represents crucifixion with who? With Christ. In the same way that <clears throat> Christ died, your old self, your old man, with all its sin and reproach and every negative thing is also dead. Now, the crucifixion represents the fact that the pain and the suffering you should have had, Jesus has had it on your behalf. The burial, on the other hand, is the fact that you are no longer that person because that person died. Because every single step in the death of Jesus Christ was necessary for our salvation. If Jesus was simply just supposed to come and die, why didn't he just come and die in his sleep? Then they took him out and they buried him and he rose up on the third day. Nothing that happened to Jesus was arbitrary and nothing that happened to Jesus was just random. Jesus had to suffer and die the most gruesome death that existed at the time because that suffering is him paying the price with his blood for us. So the crucifixion really, what it captures and represents is the fact that you don't have to suffer anymore. I don't have to suffer anymore. There is no price left to pay. Because Jesus has paid, has paid it all. His death on the other hand and burial shows that your old man is dead. And his resurrection shows that you are now resurrected in what? In Christ. You are now a new person. So when you go through water baptism, these are the things that you are affirming. That's the spiritual significance. 
And essentially what you are doing is making grace available unto, unto yourself. And all the scriptures here state that, and that's why I said you should look at it. Amen. I'm not going to go into it, but you can look at Colossians 2.12. Let me just read one of those verses so it doesn't look like I just wrote things down. Colossians 2.12 says, Buried with him in what? In baptism. Wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of, of the operation of God who had raised him from the dead. Very poignant and very, very important. When you go through all these scriptures, you would see that this was a point, or this was a fact that the disciples were very aware of. The apostles were very aware of the fact that they were new people. And that's the spiritual significance of water baptism. I talked about the baptism of suffering last week, and I said that I wasn't going to spend any time on it. So, I mean, last two weeks. So, everything that I said about the baptism of suffering last two weeks is where I would end it on the baptism of suffering. But today I want to talk about the promise of the Holy Spirit, the last type of baptism. Now, Jesus started to talk about the Holy Spirit in the book of John, particularly. If you look at John chapter 16, verse 7, I would read. John 16, 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you, Master Holy Spirit. If you go two chapters before that in John 14, 16 to 17, it says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another Comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be where? In you. Now, one thing we have to understand about the presence of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit has been present in this world from the beginning. The Holy Spirit is God. You cannot detach him from the Father and the Son. There are three in one. And so essentially, if the Holy Spirit has been present from the beginning with God, what that means is that the Holy Spirit has been evidence ever since the world came into existence. And you see that very clearly in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Bible says... And the Spirit of God was upon the face of the waters and moved. And he says, let there be light, and there was light. So the Spirit of God has been present right from Genesis chapter 1. And throughout the Old Testament, you see him coming again and again and again. He was the one that gave Samson the strength to defeat the lion and to kill the Philistines. He was the one that gave the amazing strength to Elijah when he outran the chariots of Ahab. He has been present since the beginning. He was the one who imbued a stone in the sling of David to kill a giant called Goliath. He was the one who was present 
in the life of Elijah and Elisha with all the powerful miracles that he did. So the question is, why is Jesus promising the Holy Spirit again? In the book of John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, when we see him clearly throughout biblical history in the Old Testament. And the answer to that question is simple. It's that this particular promise and coming of the Holy Spirit was unique in three very interesting dimensions that had never existed before. The first was that the Holy Spirit was coming to us in a personal way. That the Spirit of God was now coming to each individual personally. He wasn't just the Holy Spirit that is in the world. He's now the Holy Spirit that will relate with you on a personal what? Level. The second was that the Holy Spirit was coming to dwell inside of man rather than just come upon man so that man can be equipped to do the things of God. That's what we see in the Old Testament. When he says that they are filled with the Holy Ghost in the Old Testament, what actually happens is that the Spirit comes upon them so that they can do something that they cannot do with their natural ability. But the Spirit never came to dwell inside of them. And the third feature of the promise of the Holy Spirit was that he was to come permanently because Jesus said in his words that we just read that I will send the comforter to you and he will be with you for what? Forever. And in John 14 he says he will come and he will dwell with you and he will be in you. These are extremely unique things that had never happened from the beginning of history up until the point where Jesus was saying it. But what's even more important about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is heaven's seal on Christ, of Christ's atonement. And that is arguably the greatest significance of the Holy Spirit coming. Because the Holy Spirit being sent to us is the proof to us that heaven has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. That the sacrifice of Jesus was what? Was accepted. He is the sign. Which is why Jesus kept telling them, even here that we read, he says what? That if I do not leave you, the comforter cannot come. Because what he means is, if I do not pay that price, the comforter cannot what? Cannot come. God cannot send him. And this is something that we see that the disciples and the apostles were very aware of. So if you look at John's account, if you look at John chapter 7, let's read John 7. John 7 from verse 37 to 39. It says, in the last, in that, in the last day, that great day, of the feast, Jesus stood and cried and said, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow what? Rivers of living water. Then in bracket, you see that he says, But this speak he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Why is it in bracket? It's in bracket because that's a comment 
by the writer of this book. This is not something that Jesus said. This is a comment that John himself, Apostle John, while writing this book, he wrote for, for us that are reading it. That Okay, in brackets. But he said this speaking about who? The Holy Spirit. Who was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. Meaning that the sending of the Holy Spirit <coughs> is heaven's seal that Christ's sacrifice has been accepted. And that's what makes it the promise of the Holy Spirit quite vital to us. Now, we now have to discuss what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, since the topic is baptism. If we are going to be consistent with our definition of baptism, if we are going to be consistent with what the Greek definition of baptism is, which is baptizo, which means to be immersed or to what? To be submerged in a substance or liquid. Then we have to accept that the baptism of the Holy Spirit also involves a form of what? Immersion. But the difference is that this is an immersion that comes from where? From above, from heaven. Even by English language and by English standards, immersion can happen in two ways. It's either you are immersed in the what? In a deep. So you're in a river or a pool, or you are immersed under a, a waterfall. You can be immersed that way too, true or false. Because if you visited any waterfall, like I went to Ikogosi once in, when I was young, I think in GS3, I went to Ikogosi because they were taking us around. After my GS3 exams, my school decided to take us on different excursions because, so we went to Abasanjo's farm, we went to Ikogosi, went to Ulumo, and a bunch of other places when I finished junior work. So when you go see back then, I remember clearly, and you go see is a what is a waterfall that has warm water and cold water flowing in the same um, spring. So if you go there and you stand under the waterfall, what what's happening to you? Also being what you're being immersed, but you're being immersed from above. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a type of immersion, and in every single instance that it is mentioned. In the book of Acts, you will find that it always is described with the same expressions. The expressions are not different. And the expressions are deliberate to show you that it is something that is coming from above. Can we just open our Bible to the book of Acts? Let's read a couple of them quickly. Just so we can see <coughs> what we are speaking about today. Acts chapter 2 verse 2 says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of the rushing mighty wind, and he what? And he filled the house where they were sitting. If you go to verse 17, you will see, and it shall come to the pass in the last days. This is Peter quoting the prophet Joel. And he says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all what flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. If God says, I'll pour out my spirit, what does pouring signify? And where is God pouring from? Where is God? In heaven. So where is he pouring from? Above. 
If you look at that same chapter, and you look at verse 33, it says, Therefore, being at the right hand of God, exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth what? This, which ye now see and what? And hear. He shed it forth from where? From heaven, where he is where? Seated at the right side of the Father. And if you go down to all the other instances that you have here, if you open to Acts chapter 8, verse 16, the Bible says, this is, um, this is when um, Philip, the evangelist, went to preach in Samaria. So if you read Acts 8, 16, you see, for as yet he was falling upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, then laid, they, then laid they their hands on them, and they received what? The Holy Ghost. Why was it described as it had fallen on none of them yet? Because it was to come from where? Above. So Philip had gone to Samaria and he had evangelized. And he had won these souls. And he had actually done what? He had baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Meaning he had done the water baptism part. But they were not yet filled with the Holy Ghost. So Peter and John had to come from Jerusalem. And then they got field. If you open our Bibles again to the book of Acts chapter 11, this was at the house of Colinius. And after all of this has happened, this was Peter defending himself before the Jews who were challenging Peter's authority for going to pray in the house of a Gentile. And in verse 15, he says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost did what? Fell on them as on us at what? The beginning. I'm reading all of this because we have to know that it is also a what? A baptism. It's also a baptism. That's why it is called a baptism. We have to be very consistent in our understanding and our description of this thing. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is a baptism because the Holy Ghost comes from above to what? To immerse us. It's an immersion. Speaking in tongues, as we will see, is what? Is the outward evidence that that baptism has taken place. It is not the baptism in and of itself. It is what? Evidence that the baptism has taken place. It's evidence that this infilling has what? Has occurred. Which is why, as we read in verse 33, we hear Peter during his defense, during his message, which we just read now, he said that, and when the Holy Ghost came upon them, he says, and that is what is responsible for all that you see and what, and hear. So it wasn't just about what the people were seeing. It was about what the people were what, were hearing. What were they hearing? They were hearing people speaking in other tongues. So the hearing is the evidence. And we see this evidence also very consistently in the book of Acts. Even in this story of Colinius, if you look at Acts chapter 10, verse 44 to 46, the Bible says, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost what? fell on them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles was also poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Verse 46, for they heard them speak with tongues 
and magnify God. So this is what evidence. Evidence. That's what speaking in tongues is. But the baptism itself is what? An outpouring. It's an outpouring from above. An immersion. So first, or next rather, I want to talk to us about a slight contradiction that happens in the body of Christ. That people who are grounded in the word, people who understand the foundational precepts of the gospel must not have. And I want to talk about the gift of diverse kinds of what? Of tongues. Now, there's a particular verse in scripture, and that's 1 Corinthians 12, 30. And 1 Corinthians 12, 30 had become the root of a lot of controversy that surrounds praying in tongues. Because Paul was talking about something, and many people have interpreted what he was talking about out of what? Out of context. Now, I'll read the verse first, then I will start our defense to show us that there is no problem and there is no contradiction in this verse. First Corinthians 12, 30 says, Of all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret. And as with many things in the Bible or with many things in the gospel, what has happened is that many people have picked on that one statement, do all speak in what? In tongues, or do all speak with tongues rather, and they have concluded that speaking in tongues is not for everybody. And this is wrong and erroneous teaching. Because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on what? Everyone. And once you've received him, he's a gift that has been given to everyone. And once you've received him, you should what? You should pray in tongues. So he's for everybody. So to say that speaking in tongues is not for everyone is to say that everyone is not supposed to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because if you deny the evidence, you are denying who? The person. But even from this same chapter that they used to critique this particular um, baptism of the Holy Spirit that we are speaking about today, we can draw out some evidence. Now, the preceding verses here, if you read from verse 27 to 28, he says, now ye are the body of Christ, members in particular, and God has set some in the church. First prophets, secondarily, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversity of tongues. Even from these two verses, the fact that Paul said, and God has set some in the church, signifies that what Paul is speaking about here. He's speaking specifically about some particular special gifts slash distinct ministries in the body of Christ. And specifically here in the local assembly, if we want to be very um, detailed about it. Paul is talking about something and you need to trace it what? Back. So if you go earlier to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, you would see... That it says, to another the working of miracles, and another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of what? Of tongues. 
This was where Paul was talking about the spectacular gifts of the Spirit, which are nine in number in this verse. This is not an exhaustive list of all the gifts of the Spirit because we have others written in other parts of Scripture. And that's not the scope of today's teaching. So I'm not going to go into it in much details. But the point that I am trying to make here is that Paul is talking from what he spoke about from verse 1 to 10 here. And he, that is the connection between this part and what we are looking at in verse 27 to what? To 30. He's talking about a specific set of people that have been given some peculiar gifts. But perhaps, perhaps the biggest evidence of this is actually verse 13 of this same chapter, where Paul says, For by one spirit are we all, what? Baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink in what? One spirit. And it is here in verse 13 that you can get the clearest indication that Paul is not speaking here about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because he will not contradict himself. Because verse 13 clearly says that we are all baptized in what? In one spirit. So he's acknowledging that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for every believer, whether Jew or Gentile. And we have been made to drink of one spirit. On a final note, even the Bible actually talks about these experiences very differently. But of course, because the Bible was not written in English, it creates problems for us sometimes. Now, when the New Testament is speaking about us receiving the Holy Spirit at the baptism, the word gift that he uses there is a word called doria. So when we look at people speaking in tongues as evidence of being baptized by the Holy Spirit, it's always used as doria. However, when the Bible is speaking about the gifts of the Spirit, of which diverse kind of tongues is one of them, the word that is used in Greek is charisma. It's charisma. And they are never used interchangeably. But English language is limited. So because English language can be quite limited, we have gift and what? And gift. But in the original text, there is no confusion here. It is quite clear that when Paul and all the other apostles are speaking about people just praying in tongues as evidence of receiving the Holy Spirit baptism, they do not use the word charisma. They use the word doria. But when they are speaking about any of these gifts, which we call charismatic what? gifts, the reason we call it charismatic gifts is because it's gotten from the root Greek word charisma. So there's no confusion here, even within the text. So even if you don't have this problem, if you have friends or you know people who are Christian but are unwilling to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and unwilling to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the defense or the reason or the excuse that they have for you is that it's not compulsory for all Christians to speak in tongues. How many of us know there are Christians like that? There are a lot of Christians like that. 
I'll tell you, it's not compulsory for all Christians to speak in tongues or to pray in tongues. You can teach them and you can tell them no. You first have to let them know what they are denying. Because praying in tongues is not the issue. Praying in tongues is an what? Is an evidence. What they are actually refusing is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And someone not receiving that gift cannot be an effective Christian. Amen. Which brings us nicely to how we're going to draw the curtain on this topic today. How do we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And what I have in my manual is that there is one answer to this. And that answer is by grace through what? Faith. Let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. I'm going to be reading some verses here just to show us some of the things that Paul is saying. Galatians 3, 2 says, This only will I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of what? Of faith. And in verse 5 it says, He that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by what? Or by hearing of faith? These are rhetorical questions. Because Paul and the people he's writing to knows us, knows what the answer is, or no rather. And if you look at verse 13 and 14, when he finally answered the question, he says, Christ has redeemed us from the cross of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles, to who? Through Jesus Christ, that we may receive the promise of the Spirit through what? Through faith. And if we read Ephesians chapter 2, from verse 8 to 9, the Bible says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Which means that we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit through what? Faith. But by what? Grace. And if you look at this statement, by grace through faith, there's a part of that statement that belongs to God. There's a part of the statement that belongs to us. Who is the owner of the grace part? God. Who is the owner of the faith part? You and me. Grace abounds. The grace is not a problem. It's us getting it through what? Through faith. And here we have some expressions of faith. Persons of faith that are written down for people that are seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what you come to find is that it's not just limited to people that are seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I will also talk about something towards the end of this teaching that these things can also apply what to. But first, the first expression is repentance and baptism. Repentance and baptism because that's the first condition that Peter gave when he preached, and the people that he preached to asked them, asked him what they should do in Acts chapter 2. He said they should do what? Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they should what? Receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The next thing we have here is, I wrote thirsting. Thirsting, what? Thirsting. Thirsting. 
So the question is, what is thirsty? What is what? Thirsty. Let's read the verse that we have there, John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. We kind of already read it. It says, in the last day, at the day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried and said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture saith, out of his belly shall flow, what? Rivers of living water. How many of us know that there are people that get baptized in the Holy Spirit here in their rooms without saying one prayer? It's just a desire what? In their heart. A desperate thirst from God that they want what? They want God's presence. And that way they what? They get filled. They get filled. It happens. It's not everybody that they have to lay their hands on. Because this is a gift that has been freely given to what? To all believers. And the next thing we have here is what? Is asking. Luke 11 verse 13. The scripture that we quote, that we quote for blessing. What we will find out is that in the original context, Jesus was actually talking about the Holy Ghost. Because when he talked about people asking and receiving, seeking and finding, knocking and the door shall be opened unto us. He wasn't talking about physical blessing in the original context. In verse 13 of that, he says, If ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that what? That ask him. Because when you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything. So that's the third way that we receive. The next is drinking. And this is the part where the devil defe defeats some Christians. Because what does it mean to drink? It's a bit clearer in Psalm 81 verse 10. If we can open to Psalm 81 verse 10. It says, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will what? And I will feel it. Which is why sometimes when you're praying, or if you've ever led anyone to Christ, or led anyone to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, one of the things that you have to tell the person, and if you're ever going to do this, one of the things that you have to tell the person is that, the primary thing that the devil will want to use to defeat them is he will make them not want to open what? Their mouth. You have to open your mouth. That's how you what? You drink. Many people, they get baptized. In fact, there's a brother that got baptized in this fellowship. And... Um, he got baptized through daddy, actually. He got baptized through daddy. He came, and he was around for his service, and he got baptized. And later on, I and um, Pastor Femi went to see him in his house. And I asked him, have you been praying in tongues? And he said, no. And I said, why? And he said, uh, you know, sometimes I just get discouraged. And I'm like... Open, just open your mouth and pray. Say yes. But you know, sometimes, and I started giving me long stories that touch. 
When I looked at him and I said, the devil is defeating this young man. Is it because he hasn't received it? No. But such a man can never be what? Be filled. And we'll get there in a bit. The last thing is yielding or what? Or obedience. For many of us, we lose our connection to the Spirit of God even after we have received this baptism because of disobedience. Which brings me to the final point of this particular teaching. John chapter 7 verse 37 says that what? Out of your belly shall what? Flow rivers of what? Living water. What does it mean for your, for, for your belly to be what? To be flowing with rivers of living water. I want to show you something in the book of Acts. And when I show you this thing, it will make you realize that just because you can speak in tongues now does not necessarily mean that you are always in a state of being filled. Amen? Let's go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. This was after the man at the beautiful gate had been healed and Peter and John had been taken before what? The council. Hmm? And they came back and they told them that they should not speak about this Jesus anywhere anymore. And they came back and they, they prayed to God for what? For boldness. And verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were what? And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they speak the word of God with boldness. My question is, what happened in Acts chapter 2, if we're here in Acts chapter 4, reading about how they were what? They were filled with what? The Holy Ghost. Does it mean that they did not have the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2? Of course they did. But this goes back to what Jesus actually said. He says, out of your belly shall what? Shall flow. There has to be a constant and consistent flow. One of the major problems that Christians have is that we are dry on the inside, yet we can speak in tongues. Most of the tongues you are speaking is empty and what? And dry. And sometimes the reason why it's empty and dry is because of some of the reasons that we have listed here. It's because there's something that you might not have repented of. Or you might be yielding to the devil and walking in disobedience and yet you are a Christian. What you've done with that in your life is that you have put something to block that what? That river. It's no more flowing. Which means you can't be what? Filled. Sometimes you're just depleted and you just need to ask God to what? To fill you up again. The God's desire for us, for the Christian, is that we should continually be flowing with what? With rivers of living water. The Christian life should never be dry. But this goes beyond just the initial time when you receive what? The gift. 
what had happened here in Acts chapter 4 is that you might think that what Peter and John experienced did not affect them. But it affected them. They are human beings just like us. Just like you and me. They healed a man in the name of Jesus. And the man received their healing. And they were brought before the council. Before the government. For the first time. This was the same people that they knew were responsible for killing their what? Their Lord. In a not too distant past. And this is the very first time that they are being brought before them. At some point, they will get what? They will probably get used to it. But this was the very first time. So although when they were before the council, they spoke boldly before them. But remember, Jesus has already told them that when you are before these people, do not think of what you will, what, what you will say. I will put the words in your mouth. So you see, when they were there and they were saying all those things before them, that was just the spirit of what? Spirit of God moving through them. And when they left that situation and they had been released and they went back to their people, they were affected by this thing. If they were not affected by it, why would they pray for boldness? If you read through the prayers, you will see that it was a very honest prayer to God. For what? For boldness to continue this work. Which means that at that point, they were what? They were depleted. And when they prayed, what happened? The Spirit of God came and what? And filled them again. And the Bible says immediately that happened. They speak the word of God in what? In boldness. Never think of the baptism of the Holy Spirit or you having the Holy Spirit as an event. The only event that exists is when you receive what? The gift. So when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's what? That's an event. It happened. But as soon as the Spirit of God is dwelling inside you, it translates from being an event to what? To being an experience, to being a state of being. And as a believer, you have to be conscious. You have to be conscious. Which is why in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says something very interesting here. When he was talking to them, let's start from verse 15. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Verse 16, redeeming the time, because what? The days are evil. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding the will of the Lord, what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein there is excess, but be what? Being filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And this is one of the instances where I stand with Daddy a lot when it comes to all these translations and versions. Because sometimes it doesn't capture it completely. Who has the pure King James? Who has it? Not new King James. King James. What does it say in King James? Ephesians 5. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
but be filled with what? With the Spirit. There's a translation that I am looking for. And it's not it's not King James. No. It says be being filled. That's amplified. And that is the most direct and most correct translation of this verse. Be what? Being filled. Be being filled with the Spirit. In normal English, does it make sense? No. If you type that, Grammarly is going to correct you. If you type it in a document. Because it will tell you it's either be filled or what? Or being filled. But it says, be what? Being filled. Which means that it is something that you have, or someone that you have, rather. And that's the event that has what? That has happened. One day, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But after you received him, you have to what? Being what? Filled. Meaning that there will be times when you can be depleted. There can also be times when you are not thirsty. You are satisfied with whatever spiritual, in quotes, accomplishment or achievements that you have. But what we don't seem to realize is that man cannot contain all of God. The amount of God that we possess is depends, depends on the amount of ourselves that we make what? Available. One of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament is a picture of us being filled with the Holy Spirit. The woman was in debt. She was going to lose her sons. And all she had was oil. And she met with the prophet. And the prophet told her to what? Go and borrow vessels. And she poured that jar of oil into what? All the vessels. And he told her that as many vessels as you are able to what? To borrow. That's how much oil you will have. And as soon as you don't have any vessels to borrow anymore, that is when that oil what? Finishes. That miracle is a picture of the baptism of what? Of the Holy Spirit. So when you stop thirsting, you won't be filled. When you're no longer drinking, you won't, won't be what? You won't be filled. You might still be blowing your tongues or shakaraba, whatever. It's empty. When you stop yielding and you fall into disobedience and you refuse to repent, you won't be filled. When you stop asking in prayer, like Peter and John and the disciples asked here for boldness, and the Bible says they were what? Refilled. You won't be filled. This is the most important point of today's teaching on baptism. And I pray that God will help us in Jesus' name.